You know, I, I uh, went to dinner with a, a friend not too long ago down in the city of San Francisco, and, and uh, as I was driving back, um, I realized how dependent I've become on, on my phone for directions. I don't know if that's the case for you, too, but um, I just said, you know, double-clicked or held down the little button on my phone and said, Siri, take me home, and she took me home. It was it was amazing, and I was just reflecting on, on uh, our use of technology and my use of technology. I remember back in the old days before there was ever any GPS systems, and if I wanted to go down to a restaurant in San Francisco, I'd have to actually get out a map ahead of time, you know, and um, try and coordinate my, my route. Just know which main streets, arteries are going north, south, and which ones are west and east, you know, because you get into the city, you can't see the sun, um, you know, I mean, maybe you see the sun, but, you know, it's, it's like high-rise. This is all around you, and there's one-way streets, and it's kind of crazy. And so you'd have to kind of plot a course ahead of time. And uh, now it's so simple. You know, my, my Siri has a, a British accent. She says, turn right, you know, turn left. And I have to say, most of the time, she, she, she gets me home okay. But there have been a couple of occasions where she told me to turn right, and there was no road there. It's like, like cow pasture. And I'm thinking to myself, and, and at this point, you kind of wish you could argue with her, but you can't. It's a one-way conversation, right? It's like, no, there's no road there. And she tells you to do a U-turn to come back. It's like, no, there's no road there. It's cow pasture, which just goes to show that Siri, despite what people at Apple might think, is not an infallible voice and can't always be trusted. Have you ever stopped to think about and reflect on who gives you ultimate directions in life? That is, in my, my understanding, one of the most critical questions to reflect on and answer for yourself. Like, what voice do I put so much trust in that I'm willing to allow it to direct my entire life and also to form how I think about the world? Now, right now in your, 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 your thoughts, you're your, your thinking Sunday school answers. Like, well, of course, God is the voice that I listen to. And, and that may be so. But we live in a time in which people can say, I listen to the voice of God, but find themselves listening more to the voice and the flow of culture than the voice of God is revealed in Scripture. In addition to that, I mean, it, it is a critical question. What voice do I trust? Who do I trust to give direction for my life? And will I listen to that voice despite the fact that culture is moving in the opposite direction, speaking contrary? Will I listen to that voice even when it's hard? Will I listen to that voice even when it goes against the painful tendency to want to run away? That is, that is the question. Do we trust the voice of God in any and all situations, regardless of whether anybody else is? Crucial question. Which voice do I allow to give direction in my life? Well, we come to a passage in Exodus where um, God is leading his people. He's giving directions to his people. Um, if you haven't been with us, we've come to the place where 
uh, the people of Israel have finally been freed. They've been liberated. The, the, the grip of Pharaoh has been broken by ten plagues, culminating in the death of his firstborn son. Finally, he said, go, just go. And beginning in verse 17 of chapter 13, we, we kind of pick up their beginning journeys, and we realize that God is the one who's guiding and directing every step. I mean, he's actually visibly present with them. Know the Sunday school story? He appears as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So he's right with them all the time. We don't have the privilege of having a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day to follow, but he's every bit as present with us and guiding us through his word and through his works of providence in our lives. But here we are in, uh, on the journey with them, and God is going to lead them in ways that are confusing, very, very difficult, illogical from a human perspective, and scary. And they're going to have a difficult time listening to his voice. But he will prove himself in the end to be a God who is worthy of following, a God who is worthy of listening to and obeying regardless of what happens. And I hope to show you that by the end. There's two, if you think of a Bible story or a text, oftentimes there's two sides of application. There's a God side and a man side. Like most stories in the Bible reveal something about God that we're supposed to take to heart. Call that one side of the coin. The, the divine side. But there's another side to the coin, and that is the human side. How is it that we're supposed to respond to who God has revealed himself to be? And I realized as I was putting this message together, both parts are here. I want to show you how God leads his people, but also how we are supposed to respond. Now, there are some negative examples that I'm going to kind of turn into a positive. So there's kind of two sides to application this morning. God's leadership in our lives, why he should be trusted, and then our responsibility in, 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 in response to his, his leadership. Beginning of verse 17 of chapter 13, um, we learn that God does not lead his people in a particular direction. I'm just going to start the reading. Verse 17 says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said... And here, either he's speaking to Moses or he's speaking to himself. Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Typically, you and I like to take the shortest, most direct route. Straightest point between, or the shortest Distance between two points is a straight line, right? Like, who wants to go on a flight to New York by way of Seattle, down to Houston, up to Detroit, down to Miami to make it to New York? New York. It's like, that's a horrible flight schedule. It's like, I'm sorry, can you shortest, fastest, directest route? Please! I don't want to sit in an airport, much less five different airports. Well, you get out your map flip to the end of your Bible and get in your, look at your little map, you realize the shortest distance between the promised land, that is the land of Israel, and Egypt is, is right through this strip of land called Gaza. It was like the Highway 80 of the day. It linked together two major centers of civilization, Mesopotamia and Egypt. So it was, it was the Grand Central Highway, the straightest, 
most direct route, and God decides I'm not taking that route. Now, there's a number of reasons for that, but the reason explicitly given here is that if they take that route, they will experience the kind of war that will send them back to Egypt. That is, this would have been a place of massive fortifications between the the borders of of Philistia and and Egypt. So God makes a decision. I am not going to take them that way. The sense of this is that they're not ready for it yet. They're not experienced in war. They will be at some point, but God is making a decision to take them the long way around. Instead of going the direct route, he's taking them south into the wilderness. You know, there's not going to be any gas stations there. It's not going to be Walmarts. There's not going to be rest areas. It's going to be a place where they're going to completely have to depend upon the Lord. So it's, it seems from all the outward appearances like this is the long way around, and yet God has his reasons. And here, here's, here's, here's what I take from this. Because he knows his people. That he knows what they can handle. He knows where they're at in their experience. And he chooses the way that's best for them. That is, if I was to put this into a, into a, a, a principle, a lesson for us, is simply recognizing that God leads us in a way that we need, not necessarily want. Have you ever asked yourself, uh, like, why God takes us on detours, and I'm speaking providentially leading us, you know? I mean, we, we, we like, this is me dreaming as a kid, we like straight routes, you know, I'm going to graduate high school, go to college, graduate college, I'm going to meet my wife, I'm going to have a career, I'm going to buy a house, have three kids, and then I'm going to retire and go travel and see the world. <laughs> That never happens. <laughs> Just ever stop and think, you know, sometimes the reason God takes you the long way around is because he knows you. Because he knows what you need. He knows what you need to learn. And it's just, just not by accident that he took you on a massive detour. And some of you right now might feel like, man, I'm on a massive detour. Now, if you're on a detour because you're sinning against the Lord, then you need to repent. That's the first order of business. But others of us are just on a detour because that's how God has, like, led. And you find yourself in a place where you're like, I didn't ever see myself here. Well, you got to trust that your shepherd who leads you knows you and loves you. And there's a purpose behind it. He knew his people here. And he led them south instead of north. In the next step, Chapter 14, verse 1, God does something confusing. The coordinates are given, and he tells them, basically, I want you to turn around and go back. This is the sense of verse 1. He says, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of uh, Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering or they are lost in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Again, put yourself in the shoes of Israelite people marching into the wilderness. And all of a sudden, the voice comes over and says, guess what? I want you to go backwards. You're looking in, at the ground. It's like, wait a second. These footprints and wagon, wagon tracks, they look familiar. We've been here before. Like, who's got a hold of the GPS? Like, who's calling the shots here? By this time, there were 
according to chapter 12, verse 37, there were 600,000 Jewish men. And you add women and children, they say it was probably over 2 million people that are moving. 2 million people that now are backtracking. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? But that's what the Lord had for them, is, is backtrack. Not only backtrack, but he leads them into a place that is a dead end. Many of you know this story. It's like, it is a dead end. It is a place where they are trapped for all practical purposes. There is a sea, a large body of water on, on one side. There's mountains on this side and mountains on this side. There's only one way out. See? So God's having them backtrack. It looks as if they're lost. It looks as if they're wandering. They've lost their way, and now they're hemmed in. Like, who's in charge? Seems like a strategic tactical error on God's part to lead his people. And mind you, he's orchestrating it all, right? When the cloud moves, the people move. When the cloud stays, the people stay. And so there they are in this cul-de-sac. No place to go. But here's the thing is that you pay attention to to the text, you realize that there's purpose in this is that that God is moving and leading in this confusing way for the sake of Pharaoh and his armies. It says, for Pharaoh will say, like when he looks, his spies look over the mountains and say, look, they're all confused. They're going back and forth, and they're they're in a place where they're totally vulnerable and trapped. Well, Pharaoh's going to say to the people, uh, say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. And this is going to incite Pharaoh to change his heart, right? It's going to incite Pharaoh to change his heart and, and gather his armies and say, I'm gonna, I'm, I, I, I've made a mistake. I need to go grab these people and bring them back. Now, we know from other places in Scripture that God does not tempt people to sin. At the same time, there seem to be a number of places in Scripture where God outwits his opponent in a way that leads them into a trap. That is to say, the way in which this is laid out, God is acting in such a way as to lead Pharaoh to believe that the people are confused and vulnerable, and it solicits or it entices him to come back after the Lord, to harden his heart. There's purpose in this, even in the confusion of it all. And that's exactly what he does. does. I don't have time to read the text, but you can read it uh, after verse 3. That's exactly how Pharaoh responds. Hardens his heart, gathers his army, and they bear down on top of the people of Israel who are caught in a cul-de-sac. Nowhere to run. Between a rock and a hard place. And the people of Israel, when they see this, they have a complete meltdown. Right? This is how they respond it says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold. Now I want you to just notice where their sight is fixed. It says, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. Now the focus of their attention is, is the, uh, the, um, the armies of Pharaoh. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Feared greatly is a way of saying they were completely freaked out and panicked. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, but they're not crying out for help. Because they're quoted in the, in the subsequent verses. They are crying out, complaining. Like, what are you doing? 
Why have you led us here? They said to Moses, it is because, uh, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Like, what were you thinking? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the, what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They would rather live in the safety of slavery than to trust the Lord, to risk it all, and break through to freedom. This is a huge, this is a meltdown. And again, God has orchestrated all of these maneuverings. He's the one who picked the place. He's the one who backtracked. You see? And the people have, have melted. And for two major reasons. And here we're on the lower side of the coin. This is how not to respond to God's leadership. You have to ask yourself the question, did they forget? God just like rolled out ten massive plagues on the people of, of, of Egypt. Like hail and fire and darkness and death. Did they really think, after all of that, that God was just going to throw up his hands and say, hey, you know what, I'm powerless against this. That is what I submit to you because the book of, of, of Exodus places a great emphasis on the whole idea of remembering. It's why it, it implements these, 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 these feasts, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These feasts are to remind you of what I did in Egypt to, to free you. You're supposed to remember over and over and over again. Well, here they are right out of the gate, and they have forgotten. Spiritual amnesia. And the same temptation is there for us, is... Everything is fine, loving the Lord, going to church, and then you face some financial unknown or uncertainty or, or some loss, and all of a sudden you fall apart like a, like a soggy piece of toast. Did you forget? I mean, King David, when, when he was struggling in Psalm 13, he, he said, but I, I remembered that he has dealt bountifully with me. So one of, the, one of the major mistakes we make with our faith is we forget what God has done in the past, both in terms of the Bible, the big works, and also in terms of what he's done in the daily provisions for our own lives. And so the flip, the positive, put a positive spin on this. One of the things that renews our faith in the face of adversity is to, is to go back. And to remember. Remembering is a way of renewing. Remembering God's works is a way of renewing your faith and strengthening your faith. Reminding yourself, well, just wait a second here. God created the heavens and the earth. He commands the oceans and the stars. God brought Pharaoh to his knees. God sent his only begotten son to liberate us from death and the devil and sin. And remembrance is a way of renewing your faith. Here they have forgotten and they have a spiritual meltdown as a result. Is that what you do? And you feel like, man, all right, God, 
I have no idea what you're doing here. Do you remember or you just, just freak out? So that's, that's one of the lower sides of the lessons of how not to respond by forgetting, but rather to respond by remembering. But the other one, the other lesson, if you will, on our side as to how not to respond is, is the focus of their attention. The people of Israel are focused on the enemy. They are focused on the adverse and negative circumstances of their life. We got a sea behind us, we got mountains beside us, and a big army in front of us, and it seems like there's no way out. Rather than as the song we just sung, you know, through it all, my eyes are on you. It's like, no, they're not on you right now. They're on the fact that you, we are in an impossible situation. An impossible situation. Rather than focusing on, not only on the great greatness and grandeur of God, but focusing on the simple fact that every time he said he'd do something, he did something. He followed through. And God promised to take them to the promised land. It's like, I'm going to take you the whole way. I don't stop halfway. I follow through every time. And instead of focusing on the circumstances of their impossible situation, of their cul-de-sac or their dead-end street, is to focus on the simple fact that you promised, to focus on the veracity of God's word. He said he would, he would, he would lead us and guide us and protect us and bring us home. And we are banking on that truth. We are focusing instead of on the circumstances, we're focusing on the truth of his promises. That too is is how we should respond, especially when times seem bleak, difficult, dead-end streets. Instead of forgetting and instead of focusing on the circumstances, it's like, no, remember who God is and then focus your attention on his promise and his word to you and allow it to be your light in darkness. That's how positively to respond, us, as we learn to trust God's leadership in our lives. So the people are freaking out. Back to the story. And Moses does what any good spiritual leader should do. And he's come a long way since his days when he felt like he was ill-equipped I should back up and just say this too, if it's not obvious. It's quite clear that God in his leadership of our lives does lead us into times of testing where we are forced by our circumstances. In this case, it was a dead-end street. Forced to choose who are we going to trust. Are we going to trust the Lord and his voice, or are we going to trust our eyes and what we see? God does put us in those places, those times of testing. Moses stands up, helps his people. This is what he says. He says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. This is a sea. Looking at the Egyptian armies, but don't be afraid. Stop freaking out. Stand firm. Just, just stand firm. Just take, stand your ground and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. It's like all you have to do 
is watch for the Lord and shut your yapper. That's what he's saying. It's all you got to do. Watch what the Lord's going to do. That is, if you will, a third human response that helps is that this is how we as a community of faith help each other in times of crisis. In, instead of focusing on the, on the crisis or focusing on the circumstances or focusing on the impossible situation, Moses shows us the way. It's like, listen, watch and wait and see what the Lord's going to do. Directs our attention to the Lord. Mind you, Moses didn't have to do this. And in our day, perhaps some leaders would do something completely different. He could have said, Moses could have said, all right, guys, we got 600,000 strapping young Jewish men. We're armed. We got Joshua and Caleb. Both those guys can take on 50 dudes by themselves. Let's, let's muster up. Let's create ranks. Let's send the, what is it called, Israeli Defense Force up into the, up into the mountains. And let's flank them. And he doesn't do any of that. That's where we would run to really quickly. It's like, let's focus our attention on human strength and human power and numbers. And he does. And he's like, just look. Shut your yep or just look and watch what the Lord's going to do. And Moses, in an act of obedience, and this is the great deliverance, the final showdown with Pharaoh. And here, the text does better than I can summarize. It says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Let me just pause and say, this is not explained by pure natural causes. There's no wind that's going to pile water into a wall that wouldn't blow people off the earth. This is a supernatural work. Was wind involved? Yes. But this is, by all descriptions, a massive body of water that the Lord has parted. And scholars say in order for two million plus people to make it through, it probably two or three miles wide. So God did this work. He opened up the waters. They never saw this coming. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry land, on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them. I would have hated to be on those chariots. I'd be like, does anybody think this is a bad idea, chasing these guys into the... It never worked out well before. It's like, and in the morning watch, the Lord in a pillar of fire of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily, so that they were clunking along, not making fast headway. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Like, hello, we should have done a U-turn a long time ago. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And this is the final part. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Annihilation 
complete, total, 100% annihilation of the strongest army on earth. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. It seems so bleak, right? Dead end street. Catch 22, trapped. Game over, lights out. And, and, and God just simply says, separate. And, and a road appears, a way appears. It looked like an impossible situation and that the Lord saw fit to save his people by himself. That brings us to, if you will, the big point of how God leads us and why. Why would God intentionally, he orchestrated the whole thing, some confusing directions, backtracking, putting them into a dead-end street, why, why put your people in such a vulnerable position? Why put your people in such a weak and helpless position? And the answer to that, and this is, this is the purpose of God's leadership in our lives, is he intended to show his people his power and his grace. And the times that we see the power and grace of God most fully and completely is when we are helpless and we are weak, when there's nothing that we can do and only God can come into the rescue, those are the times where God shows us his power and his grace more than in times of comfort and or ease. And you know this is true. When you find yourself in a deep struggle where you don't know what to do, those are the times to remember the Lord, what he's done. Those are the times to fix on his hope and his word, and expect that he is going to show you in some way, shape, or form his power and his grace to feed your soul and to strengthen your faith. I mean, the Apostle Paul said something to that effect in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when he says, my power is made perfect in weakness. That he puts us in these places of helplessness so that he can show us his power and his grace. It's interesting, isn't it, that God oftentimes likes to put himself in what seems like a losing situation, right? A losing situation where he, to use chess terminology, is in a position of checkmate, right? Pharaoh, I'm sure, looked at Israel, trapped, and said, checkmate, man, I got this down. This Yahweh dude, he's done. Checkmate. God's like... I got you right where I want you, and I have one final move. And I will open the sea. Didn't see that coming, did you? I, I created the water. I divided the water in Genesis 1. This is small stuff to me. I command oceans. Didn't see that coming, did you? Checkmate, Pharaoh. Done. I have to believe that the devil and his minions, with all of their chess pieces on the board... On Good Friday, you know, I have the governor from Rome 
I have Caiaphas, the high priest, who's like the bishop. And I have Herod. And I have the populace of the people chanting, crucify, crucify. Everything is against the king. Everything is against the son of God. Jesus is in a losing situation. He is in the position of checkmate. It would have seemed as if all was lost, just as it was for the Israelites in Exodus. And in the moment that Jesus died, I have to believe that there was a bit of a party in hell. And the devil thought he won. And God said, wait a second. You knocked over my king, but I have one more move. I will open up the grave. And I will bring you down. Isn't it amazing that God works that way? Just when you think, wow, God's losing. Ah, it's, he's a master chessman. Always has one final move. And you know, the last move in the Bible is his. When he speaks. And with the mere whisper of his voice, the enemies of God are defeated. We have to keep this in mind as his people, as we look to him as our sovereign leader who is always with us. We may not always understand it, but he knows what he's doing. And he is in the process of not only saving his people, but destroying his enemy. And just when it looks like he's losing, you got to remember, he always has the last move. Father, I ask that uh, in whatever circumstance of life we find ourselves this morning, trapped, maybe not even trapped, maybe just indifferent about truth, about who you are, I, I ask that you would just do a genuine work of the Spirit in our time of, of uh, opening our eyes to see who you really are, to be honest with the fact that oftentimes we live more in doubt than faith, that we easily give in to fear and anxiety, forgetting that you're there, forgetting that you're here, forgetting that you've made promises to us that we can hold on to, forgetting that no one ever puts you in a position of checkmate. Help us, Lord, in our hearts to believe this truth, not just to know it, believe it in Christ's name. Amen.